and welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 6, The Houses of Parliament. So this is the second episode when we've come west to Westminster, spending an enjoyable half hour or so last week at Westminster Abbey, and then popping next door today to the Palace of Westminster, also known as the Houses of Parliament. I'm Marion Jones, City Breaks is my little project, I like to go a-travelling, when I go, I like to know the history and the culture behind what I'm seeing, and then I like to come home and podcast about it, in the hope that perhaps those of you listening will find out a few things that will inform your own visit. Or perhaps I might be talking about somewhere that you haven't been yet. In that case, I hope that I might encourage you to go and give you some of the information that will help you make the most of it when you get there. So then, the Houses of Parliament. England is the mother of parliaments. So wrote, you've guessed it, a British politician. Perhaps you're thinking he would say that, wouldn't he? It's a politician from the 19th century, though, one John Bright, writing in 1865. I think for most of us, when we first think of the Palace of Westminster, that's maybe not the first thought that strikes. It's more a vision of that pile of Gothic glory in its lovely riverside setting, perhaps a glimpse of Big Ben, that picture that says London to Britain and the rest of the world. It is a truly beautiful building. So beautiful, in fact, that a French visitor in the 19th century, one Hippolyte Ten, was moved to write the following. The palace magnificently mirrors itself in the shining river. In the distance, its clock tower, its legions of turrets and of carvings, all outlined in the mist. And yes, it's true, it does look spectacular in the mist, although I must point out that it's not misty all day long, every day, in London. Just, perhaps, quite a lot of the time. But Monet liked it, he painted the Houses of Parliament in various light conditions, many of them quite hazy. So yes, it's beautiful, but it's also true that it's a building full of historical significance. Or perhaps I should say a site full of historical significance, because the building itself is newer than possibly you realise. The idea of a Palace of Westminster on this site dates from the 11th century, and ever since then, this site has been the centre of politics and of so many events of historical significance. Put rather nicely by David Canadine, who wrote a whole book about the Houses of Parliament, focusing on its history, its art and its architecture, and about its significance, he wrote the following. The Palace of Westminster has been the stage upon which some of the most extraordinary events in national history have been enacted, and remains to this day the focus of pageant and politics, the preeminent theatre of state. So I'd like to try and cover all of that in the episode, a little bit of history, certainly something about some of the greatest moments of drama and the really big speeches that still resonate down the years. I think we should have a look at some of its traditions. There are quite a lot. The origins of many of them pretty well lost in the mists of time. And of course, a few pointers about what there is to see inside. I don't think you can take yourself into the Houses of Parliament. You can be shown round by your MP or anyone else you can persuade who works there to show you round, or more likely, you can join a guided tour. And your guide, of course, will tell you much of what you want to know, but I think it's quite nice to know in advance some of what's coming. And we will certainly pop next door as well into Westminster Hall, which is the oldest and in some ways the most magnificent part of the whole impressive complex. OK, so it's beginnings. The idea of some kind of politics on this site dates back a thousand years and more, but the building that you're looking at today dates from the middle of the 19th century. 
and that's because in 1834 its predecessor was practically destroyed by fire. The odd little bit remains, which was incorporated into the grand new building, but on the whole, you are looking at something which was built in the 1840s. Winding back just for a moment, up until about the 14th century, it was true that Parliament, such as it was, met really wherever the king happened to be. In those days, from the 7th century onwards, it was known as the Witan, which is Old English for meeting of wise men. Just bear that in mind next time you're looking at a selection of politicians. But in those days, perhaps some barons, some bishops, that sort of person, would be collected by the king to advise him, pretty much only when he asked for advice. But nevertheless, it was a start. In 1215, then, the very famous Magna Carta, signed by King John, at which he agreed to take a bit more notice of the barons. And a mere 50 years after that, in 1265, there was held by one Simon de Montfort what's become known as the very first representative parliament, and it was held in the chapter house of Westminster Abbey. So that gives you a clue as to how it was that politics and the Abbey have been intertwined for all those centuries. It was a meeting at which not just taxation was discussed. Up until then, that had pretty much been the only thing on the king's agenda. What money did he need and who was going to have to give it to him? But from this date onwards, there began to be a little bit more discussion of more political matters. So a move in the direction of the modern parliament. Up until 1512, the royals were actually living in the Palace of Westminster. They moved out then because of, you've guessed it, a major fire. Took themselves down the road to the Palace of Whitehall. But the politicians remained in what remained of the Palace of Westminster. And that's how it is that really it became the home of the two Houses of Parliament. Something that relates quite directly to today. In the year 1547, Edward VI gave permission for the House of Commons to use the disused St Stephen's Chapel, a building which is still there today, as their meeting place. It's quite a small, narrow room. Two sets of benches were set up on either side. And that's become the model, even today, for the British Parliament. The idea that opposing parties will sit opposite each other. Something which I know has been said has led to our rather confrontational style of politics. I quite often notice when you see parliaments from other countries, they're all sitting in the round. And something of that idea of batting arguments to and fro is possibly lost. It was, in fact, early in the 16th century that they began to keep records daily manuscript journals kept by the clerks, some of which survive today. We have records for the House of Lords as far back as 1510, and for the Commons from a few years later. We can't say they're complete records, because many of them were burned in the fire in 1834, but nevertheless, just imagine looking at a document from the English Parliament, written in 1510. And just a century after that, in 1605 in fact, came one of the biggest dramas ever to rock the Houses of Parliament, namely Guy Fawkes and his gunpowder plot. The aim of which, of course, was to destroy the whole thing. I think it's only fair to Mr Fawkes to explain why it was that he wanted to get rid of Parliament. And in a nutshell, the reason was because he was a Catholic and he knew that Catholics were being very much persecuted during the reign of James I. Here's a little flavour of that explained by the historian Robert Lacey in his book Tales of English History. Anyone caught hearing the Mass could be fined and sent to jail. Priests, many of whom survived in priest holes, hidden behind the panelling in the homes of rich Catholics, 
were liable to be punished by imprisonment or even death. Catholic children could not be baptised. The dying were denied the ceremony of extreme unction, their crucial step to heaven. Catholics could not study at university. If they failed to attend their local Anglican church, they were classed as recusants, we might say refuseniks, and became liable to fines of £20 a month. And, as Robert Lacey goes on to explain, when an average farmer earned about £2 a year, you can see that £20 a month is just a totally impossible sum. So that's the background. Guy Fawkes and a dozen or so of his Catholic friends got together and made a plan. I enjoyed Robert Lacey's wording on this because he writes about their extravagant scheme to, quote, blow up the king, his family, the royal council, and all the members of the Protestant-dominated Houses of Parliament in one spectacular blast. In fact, it all went, from their point of view at least, horribly wrong, because somebody tipped off the authorities, and Guy Fawkes was found down in the cellars of the Houses of Parliament, surrounded by barrels of gunpowder. He was arrested, tortured, and executed along with all his fellow plotters in the most horrible way imaginable, being hung, drawn and quartered. There was much more drama a bit later in the same century, revolving around the Civil War and the quarrel between Charles I and Parliament. King John may have signed Magna Carta in 1215, but Charles I, who came to the throne in 1625, was very much of the opinion that the monarch would do the ruling, thank you very much, and Parliament should have nothing to do with it. He kept making this point. In the end, he dissolved Parliament, and the result was the Civil War and eventually the trial and execution of the king. Many moments of high drama. I'm going to focus on just a couple. There was, for example, the moment when Charles took himself to the House of Commons, marched in, looking for certain MPs who were leading the fight against him. The Speaker was horrified, rather bravely pointed out that it wasn't Charles's role to come to Parliament. Charles dismissed this with the comment, "'Tis no matter," marched in anyway, cast his eyes around, realised that he'd been tricked because the people he was looking for had been warned and disappeared, and there was nothing for it but a climb down, and he's said to have remarked, "'All my birds have flown.'" It came then eventually to something totally unprecedented, the trial of an English king, which was held on New Year's Day in 1649 in Westminster Hall. The charge was treason. King Charles treated the whole thing pretty much with contempt, said no, he wouldn't take his hat off, as he was required to do, kept pointing out that he thought they had no right to try him. But it didn't get him anywhere, because in the end he was found guilty as, as they put it at the time, quote, tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy to the good people of this nation. The sentence was pronounced, it was to be death by severing his head from his body. And ten days later, he was indeed beheaded outside the banqueting house on Whitehall. We'll be talking about that in the next episode. A crowd had gathered to watch, staring up at the scaffold which had been set up on the first floor balcony, and watching in stunned silence as one blow of the axe severed the king's head, and the executioner then picked it up and cried out, Behold, the head of a traitor! So that brought the end of the monarchy in 1649, and for the next eleven years, England was ruled by a protectorate under Oliver Cromwell, who also created some moments of drama in Parliament. In fact, spot the irony, he too had moments when he got fed up with Parliament and felt it was useless, and he's said to have made these points in a speech so memorable that in a book I read called Great British Speeches, it was described as 
a masterpiece of invective, perhaps one of the greatest speeches ever made. So we must have some quotes from that. Here then is Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell on the 20th of April 1653 explaining that he doesn't think much of Parliament. Quote, It is high time for me to put an end to your sitting in this place, which you have dishonoured by your contempt of all virtue and defiled by your practice of every vice. Ye are a factious crew and enemies to all good government. Ye are a pack of mercenary wretches. There was plenty more. Let's skip some of that and go to the end, where he makes it very clear that he can't take any more and they should go. Quote, I command ye therefore, upon the peril of your lives, to depart immediately out of this place. Go, get you out, make haste. Ye venal slaves, be gone. So take away that shining bauble there and lock up the doors. In the name of God, go. The shining bauble, by the way, is what he called the mace, which is the symbol of Parliament, the thing that has to be there and should be respected by everybody whenever Parliament is taking place. Perhaps there are some hints there as to why the Protectorate didn't last very long and the King, or the different King, was brought back in 1660. Problems did rumble on a bit. In 1688 there was the Glorious Revolution. That marked the end of the reign of the Catholic King James II and the bringing over from Holland of the Protestant William and Mary to rule instead and it was a moment when the supremacy of Parliament was underlined again. Kings and queens from then on would rule, yes, but they would have to take more notice of Parliament. And gradually, gradually, through the 18th century, there emerged indeed a bit of a more modern approach. More financial control, so Parliament would be more in charge of raising taxes and having some say about how they would be spent. And gradually, the emergence of the idea of a Prime Minister. That actual term wasn't used until the 20th century, but the role is thought to first have been exercised by one Sir Robert Walpole, who was actually known as First Lord of the Treasury. I believe even today our Prime Minister is subtitled First Lord of the Treasury, or presumably First Lady, when we have Mrs Thatcher or Mrs May, or whoever the next one will be. The idea also came about that this person would chair something known as a cabinet, and would be known as the acting head of the government, so you can see the gradual emergence of all the things that we have today as part of our government. But there's plenty more drama to come. 1834, for example, the fire. Thought to have started when two workmen were burning wooden tally sticks. Apparently they were used by the Exchequer to do its sums. Amazing. I wonder if they still have an abacus today. Anyway, this burning went badly wrong, spread everywhere, the panelling caught fire, the blaze took off and destroyed really most of the Palace of Westminster. Except thankfully, for Westminster Hall and for a few of the cloisters dating from the 1520s and St Stephen's Chapel was also saved. It's still there today, in fact, although it's been renamed. It's now known as the Chapel of St Mary Undercroft. Well, they didn't hang about. The Parliament was rebuilt, the building that you see today, and opened in 1847. And just to give some flavour of what an amazing, huge complex it is, I'd like to read another quote from David Canadine's book, on the Houses of Parliament, which explains what there actually is inside. I like this quote because it's informative. I also like it because of the wonderful way it's worded. OK, so here we go. It comprises, quote, 14 halls, galleries, vestibules and other apartments of great capacity and noble proportion. It comprises eight official residences, each first-rate mansions. 20 corridors and lobbies, which serve as the great roadways 
through this aggregation of edifices, two and thirty noble apartments facing the river, which will be used as committee rooms, libraries, waiting rooms, dining rooms and clerk's offices. Wow! And just to finish the history, a couple of momentous events would include the Great Reform Act of 1832, which was the beginning of extending the vote to a greater proportion of the population, but not women, because that didn't come until the 20th century. 1918, women finally granted the vote, well, some women at least, but it wasn't until 1928 when women were going to be allowed to vote on exactly the same terms as men. What I like to think about most when I go around Parliament is some of the magnificent speeches that have been made there. So I've picked out a small selection from which I'm going to read just tiny extracts, just to give a sense of the history of the place and the things that have been decided and voted on there. I'm going to start in 1789 when William Wilberforce was making some of his key anti-slavery speeches. It was a long, long campaign because it wasn't until 1833 that the Abolition of Slavery Bill was finally passed. But more than 40 years before that, William Wilberforce stood up in the Commons and gave a graphic description of some of the things that he'd seen and read about to do with slavery. What he described, for example, as the deplorable state and unparalleled torment that people suffered. And he went on to express his disbelief that humans could do this to one another. This is how he put it. When first I heard, sir, of these iniquities, I considered them as exaggerations and could not believe it possible that men had determined to live by exerting themselves for the torture and misery of their fellow creatures. I think he knew it was going to be a long campaign and he made it very clear that he wasn't going to give up. This is how he put that. From every consideration I shall deal frankly with the House by declaring that no act of policy whatever will make me swerve from my duty and oblige me to abandon a measure which I think will be an honour to humanity. His goal, he said, was nothing less than the total abolition of the slave trade. He devoted the latter part of his life entirely to that goal, and in fact, when the bill finally did pass in 1833, the news had to be carried to him by a messenger, because he was too ill to attend the house, and he died just three days later. There are so many speeches of great note from the 19th century, Where to start? Well, I've gone for just one, given by Lord Palmerston when he was Foreign Secretary in 1850. It was four hours in length, and the point of it, if you could possibly boil it down to one idea, was that Britain had a duty to protect her subjects wherever they were in the world and whatever had befallen them. He was prompted, I think, by a particular incident, but he made it sound like this was a strategy forever, in all circumstances. And such an impact did it make that this speech was described in the Dictionary of National Biography as being marvellous for its, quote, breadth of view, logical argument, moderation of tone and height of eloquence. I've seen it described in a book on great British speeches as perhaps the greatest speech ever made. The House of Commons, it said, listened with rapture and interrupted with volleys of cheers. You will be wondering whatever was it that he said. Well, I'll give you a very brief flavour. I think it's true to say that it does sound rather dated these days, but anyway, here goes. I particularly like this bit when he talks about other countries in general and how they're not up to much, and then goes on to compare England with them. So here he is. We have seen, as stated by the right baronet, the member for Ripon, the political earthquake rocking Europe from side to side, while we have seen thrones shaken, 
shattered, levelled, institutions overthrown and destroyed, while in almost every country of Europe the conflict of civil war has deluged the land with blood, from the Atlantic to the Black Sea, from the Baltic to the Mediterranean, this country has presented a spectacle honourable to the people of England and worthy of the admiration of mankind. You have to agree it's rousing stuff, whether you actually agree with the content or not. And somewhere later on, perhaps towards the end of the four and a half hours, he goes on to explain the sense of duty that he and all of Her Majesty's government feel to their citizens wherever they find themselves in the world. So let's just have one more burst of Lord Palmerston at full patriotic throttle. Her Majesty's government, he explained, had a sense of duty and knew that it was bound to afford protection to Englishmen wherever they should find themselves. And here's his reasoning. Quote, As the Roman in days of old held himself free from indignity when he could say, Civis Romanus Sum, so also a British subject, in whatever land he may be, shall feel confident that the watchful eye and the strong arm of England will protect him against injustice and wrong. Rah, rah, you can't argue with that. If I ever have my passport stolen when I'm abroad, I shall be quoting that as soon as I get to the British Embassy. If we fast forward to the 10th of December 1936, we have the then Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin explaining to the House that something absolutely momentous is about to happen to the British monarchy. The King is going to abdicate. Mr Baldwin takes us through the order of events. I saw the King, he says, on Monday the 16th of November, and I began by giving him my view of a possible marriage. I told him that I did not think that this particular marriage was one that would receive the approbation of the country. That marriage would have involved the lady becoming Queen. And I pointed out to him that the position of the King's wife was different from the position of the wife of any other citizen in the country. It was part of the price the King has to pay. So in short, Parliament, the Government, Mr Baldwin himself perhaps, was not ready to allow the King to marry the American divorcee, Mrs Simpson. What did the King say in return? Stanley Baldwin tells us that. I am going to marry Mrs Simpson, and I am prepared to go. And Mr Baldwin's reply? Sir, that is most grievous news, and it is impossible for me to make any comment on it today. And eventually came the conclusion, quote, While there is not a soul among us who will not regret this from the bottom of his heart, there is not a soul here today that wants to judge. We are not judges. He has announced his decision. He has told us what he wants to do, and I think we must close our ranks and do it. A massive monarch-shaking moment then. King Edward abdicated. He was succeeded by his brother, the Duke of York, who became George VI, and was succeeded in turn by his daughter, Queen Elizabeth. And when you're talking about great speeches in the house, of course there's one name that always comes to everybody's mind, and that is Winston Churchill. Again, where to start? So many speeches. I've picked in the end extracts from three, which all took place within just a few months in 1940, just to give the flavour of the way that he spoke to the House. So the first one is from the 13th of May 1940, when he's just become Prime Minister, and he wants to make it clear that he can see the challenges ahead. And this is how he puts it. I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. 
barely a month later, one of his other very famous speeches, given just after the success, in inverted commas, of Dunkirk, or the fact that Britain had managed in a seemingly desperate circumstances to rescue so many of our soldiers from the French beaches and bring them back to Britain in those rather unlikely little sailing boats. But things were still very bleak, and Churchill knew that he had to explain to everyone that the struggle was absolutely not over. He needed to make it clear how important it was that everybody kept going, and what would be gained if they were to win, and lost if they were not to. So here he is. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island, or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. He goes on to talk about the new dark age he thinks will start if Britain doesn't manage to stand up to Germany, and ends with this rallying cry. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties, and so bear ourselves that, if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. And then in August of that year, so only a couple of months later, after the Battle of Britain, another of his most famous quotes when he's talking about the pilots who've pulled off such an amazing feat, never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. But what's interesting about that speech is he does go on and talk about, yes, the bravery of the pilots, but also about the fact that this is going to go on, and yet more resolution will be called for. A year after that, in May 1941, the Commons was badly bombed, and it was Churchill himself who stressed the importance of rebuilding it. It was also his idea that one little part of the damage should be left as a reminder. It's an archway between the Members' Lobby and the House of Commons Chamber, where you can still see the reddish patches that were caused by the heat of the bombs. Churchill himself said this would serve as a monument to, as he put it, the ordeal of the war and the fortitude of those who lived through it. So I hope that's given you a sense of the history of the place. And I'd like to finish with just a brief rundown of some of the things to look out for if indeed you do manage to go on a tour. The overall effect is, I have to say, overwhelming. A whole maze of lobbies and corridors, all with fancy names, lots of artwork, quite a bit of it chosen by Prince Albert in the 1840s. He made overseeing the rebuilding after the fire one of his projects. And if you glance around and up, you'll see vaulted ceilings and mosaics, statues of, I think, every prime minister and a whole host of other important politicians, Latin inscriptions, etc, etc. So, let's focus on the must-sees. Well, definitely the House of Commons chamber, with the two rows of banked seating, green leather upholstery, the main parties facing each other across the chamber. I think the first thing you'll notice is it's much smaller than you were expecting. And when you know that there are 600 MPs, or a few more, it's interesting to note that actually there's only seating for about 430. That too goes back to Churchill. Apparently he thought it was important to have a room small enough so that everybody could hear everybody else without difficulty. We weren't going to bother with all those headphones and microphones that you see in other parliaments. It's an impressive room though, the tiered seating, the wood panelling all the way up the press gallery, the public gallery, and a few things that you should look out for. The table in the middle, for example, which is called the Table of the House, came to us from Canada. There are two dispatch boxes on top of that, made of wood from New Zealand. The speaker's chair is made of Australian black bean wood, and a whole host of other fixtures and fittings sent to us from various Commonwealth countries. 
When Parliament is in session, you will see the mace stowed below the table, which is the symbol that work is in progress. You will see the Speaker in his chair. He lives in-house, and every session of Parliament starts with a formal procession by him through the central lobby to the chamber, accompanied by the Sergeant-at-Arms, who I think in modern-day parlance is a member of security. That person walks in front of him, carrying the mace, and then there's a train-bearer and a chaplain and a speaker-secretary, all following along. The first Speaker of the House, by the way, was elected in 1377, one Thomas Hungerford. Bit of a different role in those days. One of his jobs, I'm guessing it was always a man, was sometimes to give the monarch unwelcome news. This made the job rather dangerous, and in fact there are nine speakers from medieval times that we know lost their lives. So displeased was the monarch with the news that they brought, seven of them actually being beheaded. The dispatch box, presumably at one stage, used to have dispatches in it, but no more. It's just there, and it's the place from which ministers and shadow ministers speak. It's also where, when you're a new member, you've just been elected for the first time, that's where you come and swear allegiance to the crown. Another very House of Commons word is division bell, that being the bell that rings just before they're going to vote to alert everybody, if they've nodded off or gone to their office elsewhere or whatever, that now is the time to come and cast their vote. It's called that because they vote by dividing two ways, for and against, whatever the bill is, and each one walks through the door for I or the door for nay, and they're physically counted. That also means a record is kept of who voted what, so if you want to know what your own MP is voting for or against, you can find out. The predominant colour in the House of Commons is definitely green, the carpet's green, although in fact if you look carefully you'll see there's a red line on it as well on each side, just in front of each front bench, and it's known as the sword line, because it was designed to keep opposing members two sword lengths apart. It was in fact never allowed to take a sword into the chamber, but I think they felt they couldn't be too careful. And once you've clocked the green in the House of Commons, you are sure to notice if you go up into the Lord's Chamber that the colour changes immediately and it's red. Bit fancier all round, there's a gilded throne, for example, from which the monarch reads the speech at the state opening of Parliament. And amusingly, one of the other must-see things is the wool sack, which is actually a sack filled with wool, and that's where the Lord Speaker sits. They introduced this in the 14th century, when wool was very important, one of our major exports, I believe. But nobody's ever seen a need to change it, so there it still is, stuffed with wool, apparently from all four countries of the United Kingdom and from Commonwealth countries. About three quarters of the Lords belong to a party, so they sit on opposing benches, just as they do in the Commons, but there are also the cross benches, and you sit on those if you don't want to signify that you're aligned to a particular party. They've got a table and some dispatch boxes too, and in fact it was at this table that Churchill delivered some of his wartime speeches, all the ones delivered after the bomb damage. And it is said that if you can get close enough to the table, you will see some little dents in it, which is damage done by his signet ring as he was banging his hand up and down during his speeches. There are, as you would expect, all sorts of decorations and statues and this and that, and just to mention one, If you cast your eye upwards, you will see a whole row of stone niches, each one with a statue inside. Eighteen statues, in fact, they being the barons and the archbishops who sealed Magna Carta. There's lots more to see apart from the two chambers. And one thing that you're bound to notice, may in fact recognise, because you often see it on the TV news, is the bit known as the central lobby, 
which is the midpoint between the House of Lords and the House of Commons, the place where MPs meet their visitors, the place where the TV cameras are often set up for journalists to film reports. Lots more splendour, floor tiles, for example, with the roses and thistles and leeks and shamrock flowers on them to represent the four countries of the UK, loads of statues of monarchs and politicians, super fancy arched ceiling with four compartments full of mosaics depicting the saints of the four countries, St George, St Andrew, St David, St Patrick, a very worthy Latin inscription, in fact a quotation from Psalm 127 which reads in English, Unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labour in vain. Then there's St Stephen's Hall, where the Commons sat before the 1834 fire. If your tour takes you into that, then please know that you are standing in the very room where Charles I came to find the members of Parliament who were against him. It's also the room in which Wilberforce delivered his speeches against slavery. And one of my favourite spots, if you can get to the chapel of St Mary Undercroft, that really is truly gorgeous. Floor-to-ceiling rich designs in jewel colours. Think red and blue and gold. Really quite a sight. And that's by no means everything, but I think it might be the place to stop before this just becomes a massive list. But before we leave the whole complex, I must take a moment to tell you about Westminster Hall. If you go on a visit to the Palace of Westminster, your entry ticket, I think, usually does let you into both these places, and Westminster Hall is something not to be missed. It is, in fact, the oldest part of the Palace of Westminster, one of the few bits that was saved in the fire of 1834. And the oldest parts of it were built right back in the 11th century, although it was added to and remodelled here and there by Richard II in the 14th century and again in the 19th century. It is massive, huge timber roof begun in 1393. Just look up at it and wonder how they ever did it at all, as far back in time as that. And the thing about Westminster Hall is it too has been the scene of So many great state ceremonies and occasions, both in the past and much more recently. There are plaques on the floor here and there to commemorate some of the most significant ones. So to mention just a few, the coronation feasts for Henry II and Richard the Lionheart, both held here. Also the one for Anne Boleyn when she was crowned. Henry himself didn't attend. Reigning monarchs didn't attend a spouse's coronation. They had to watch from an upper gallery, so gaze upwards and picture him sitting up there, thinking that he'd done it, he'd managed to force through the wife that the Pope really didn't want to accept. Over the centuries, coronation feasts got more and more lavish, and everybody wanted to outdo all their predecessors, until eventually somebody, William IV in fact, put a stop to it. The coronation feast for his predecessor, George IV, had been so outrageously lavish that he just decided a halt had to be called. So let's enjoy just listening to some of the food that was consumed at the banquet put on to celebrate George IV's coronation. 23 kitchens, supervised by Jean-Baptiste Vattier, produced 160 tureens of soup, similar amount of fish dishes, roast joints of venison, beef, mutton and veal, vegetables and appropriate gravies etc. presented in 480 sauce boats. Cold dishes including ham, pastries, seafood and jellies, number 3,271. All this was washed down with 9,840 bottles of various wines and 100 gallons of iced punch. I do like how gloriously precise the numbers are. But William thought back to that lot, decided it was too extravagant, those are his own words, 
and that he wouldn't be indulging in anything quite so outrageous. There have been, too, a number of very famous trials held here. Thomas More, for example, was convicted of treason. That was Henry VIII's word for not doing as he wanted, and agreeing that Henry should from now on be known as supreme head of the Church of England. As a devout Catholic, Thomas More just couldn't find it in him to betray the Pope, even though he was very aware what the risks were. The trial of Guy Fawkes and seven of his co-conspirators was also held here, and then they were taken next door to the old palace yard to be executed. The trial of King Charles I, also here, and many more. It's also been in Westminster Hall that one or two very famous people have had their lying in state, a very formal occasion when they are in their coffin placed on a raised platform in the middle of the hall and guarded 24 hours a day by a guard of honour. Two of the 20th century people accorded that were Winston Churchill and Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. It's also been the place where some momentous speeches have been made. It's deemed a great honour to very distinguished visitors to the UK that they should be allowed to address both Houses of Parliament and that that will take place in this hall, partly because the size allows it and partly just as a mark of the grandeur of the occasion. It is, for example, the place where ceremonial addresses were given for Queen Elizabeth on the occasion of her Silver Jubilee and her Golden Jubilee and, of course, her Diamond Jubilee. Some of the famous people who visited and made speeches would include Nelson Mandela, Pope Benedict XVI, and the US President Barack Obama. Barack Obama, this was in 2011, opened his speech with a joke, sort of. He said, I have known few greater honours than the opportunity to address the Mother of Parliaments at Westminster Hall. I am told that the last three speakers here have been the Pope, Her Majesty the Queen, and Nelson Mandela, which is either a very high bar or the beginning of a very funny joke. And he went on to make it clear that he was very aware of the historical significance of where he was standing, saying, Centuries ago, when kings, emperors and warlords reigned over much of the world, it was the English who first spelled out the rights and liberties of man in the Magna Carta. It was here, in this very hall, where the rule of law first developed. Courts were established, disputes were settled, and citizens came to petition their leaders. Yes, quite. Well said. And just as a very last thing, I must mention Big Ben, the clock tower with the four bells which ring out every quarter of an hour. The biggest of the bells is called Big Ben. It's actually the bell, not the clock, that's got that name. And Big Ben is the one that strikes the hour. Next time you're looking up at it, do try and remember that it weighs 13 tonnes, is the largest bell ever to be cast in Britain, and that when it was brought from Whitechapel where it had been cast, it took 16 horses to pull it along to Westminster. The excitement was such that crowds lined the streets all the way and cheered it. So I think that's about it for today. There's so much to say about Westminster, but we don't want this podcast to be twice as long as all the others. And I hope I've given you a flavour of why it's such an important building and what you can see if you're lucky enough to go and visit. As a quick look ahead to next week, going to stay in the area, go down Whitehall as far as Trafalgar Square. And on that route, which can be walked in 10 or 15 minutes, there are several very interesting places to stop off and have a look. So that's what I intend to be doing. I do hope you'll be able to join me. I hope also that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you very much for your company and goodbye.